Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. 2 Peter chapter 2. If you remember, he has just told us about prophets. The prophets of old who raised their sails and God's breath, God's wind. God's ruach in the Hebrew, pneumos in the Greek, moved them along. They were carried along, Peter says. And they were carried along by the Spirit of God. God led them in what to write. But there are some other prophets he's going to tell us about today. He said in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. God's not forgotten it. It didn't fade away. He said, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, now you'll see he's given us a list of three eras of God's judgment, not errors, but eras, time periods. Before time began, possibly, the falling of the angels, then he'll move to the ancient world and the flood. And then you'll move to Sodom and Gomorrah. For if, verse 5, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows, here's the promise, he led up to it all this time, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And I don't like the word from, not that I'm an authority, but it's ek, it's out of. He rescues the godly out of trials. From sounds like we don't have to go through them. We might. Uh, We certainly will if we live long enough. But He rescues us out of them. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
and especially especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful. Not bold and beautiful, but the bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the gracious or the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, even they do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them in the presence of the Lord. Our last verse, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. I came across a question this week in some of my extra reading. Uh, The question was, did Christ design His church so that it could evolve? Was it ever Christ's intent that His church start out as it was, but continue to maybe change throughout time? And of course for you and I, we know that that's not to be the case. But there's something that we cannot deny, and that is that social and cultural trends have certainly made a major impact on a lot of churches nowadays. Uh, Mega churches nowadays are a big thing, but they have no firm doctrines, a lot of them. I'm not saying all of them are that way. And, and a lot of them serve more as a social and community hub for the attendees. It's a great place for a few thousand of us to get together and kind of meet or whatever. But the doctrines in a lot of these churches are vague at best. I didn't say all, I said in a lot of them. Matter of fact, if we didn't read it today, we will probably next week. But in verse 19 of this chapter... It says that these false prophets that preach that have helped to transform the church instead of the church transforming the culture, a lot of them, he says, they promise freedom. They promise freedom. And and I think about that. It's like, oh yes, that's what a a lot of people are, are, are wanting. Just a little freedom. I mean, the Bible is just so blooming rigid and and the lines are straight, and the, the gospel is so cut and dried, and there's heaven and hell, and, and, and that's it. There's, there's not like a third option, and it teaches us that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and, and there is no way you can be saved outside of Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, or where you live, or when you live in this world. So it's just a tad rigid for some folks. Some folks would uh, say, I, I need a little freedom. Pastor, I, I have people tell me sometimes, I, I don't know hardly what to do. My kids have friends that are Christians that are gay. And, and, and they go to church somewhere and they're faithful. I, I don't, my, my kids are really confused about 
all of this. Well, your kids shouldn't be confused. You should help them with some of that. But I, I can just tell you, it is, it's a lot, a lot of people in the world just need a little bit of freedom. This business of, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but, but I don't care for the church thing. I'm more of a private Christian. You need a little freedom, don't you? You, you, you need a little slack in the straps, so to speak, and, and to allow you to, you know, kind of uh, sort of reframe your faith and your walk, personalize it. That's a great word nowadays. Let's personalize it a little bit. But I can tell you, even though we know better than that, it has happened. Pew Research, I came across an article this week. Pew Research did a more recent poll that said 38% of American Christians, okay, this is not Americans, this is American Christians, they say, 38% of them say that Jesus Christ is either definitely or probably not ever going to return to the earth. 33% only 33% of American Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God and is to be interpreted literally. 65% of American Christians believe that there are multiple paths to eternal life. I said Christians, not just Americans. And 80% of those that believe there are multiple paths, believe that some of those paths can be found in faiths that aren't even Christian at all, such as Judaism or Islam or Hinduism or perhaps some other world religion. Let me give you just another little tad of history here about the so-called evolution of the church that will kind of help set the tone. Before we look at our text, if you look at early church history, you have the book of Acts, and that is the rise of the church as Jesus Christ designed it. It comes to a close in the New Testament after Acts and then the other writings of, uh, of, of the others in the New Testament that God moved upon. It, 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 the writing ends about 90 to 95 A.D., and then it's closed, and the canon is closed, or the, the measurement of Scripture is closed, and, and, and that is it. But I, I can tell you that that's like 90, 95 A.D. By A.D. 120, there were some things that had changed so drastically in the church, you could hardly recognize it as the same one that you had read about in Acts. The one in Acts, things were so simple. You had multiple elders like we have here. Sometimes they're called pastors. Sometimes they were called overseers. But they had multiple pastors. But by 120, A.D. 120, that's not very long. We already know that a lot of churches had gone to just one pastor in leadership. And in some areas, you would have one pastor over many churches, and these elders, these shepherds, uh, these overseers finally became known as bishops, and 
and I'm moving pretty fast here through history, but it didn't take long until the church in Alexandria, Egypt, the northern part of Africa, and the church at Antioch up near Syria, and the church in Rome over in Italy, those three churches, their pastors became more powerful than anybody else, and they began to hold sway over all of the Christian churches And then it wasn't long until the bishop in Rome began to have authority over the other two, and he finally became known later as Papa, or the Pope of the church. You didn't read any of that in the book of Acts. You didn't read a word of that in the New Testament, but you see how it's changed. And part of the reason is this, the church has become the Roman church. Because what happened is, by 313 Constantine, the emperor of Rome, he has already declared the Edict of Milan, which allowed Christianity to become a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And we've told you that story before. 67, 68 years later, Theodosius, another emperor, would make Roman Christianity, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And it coupled with government and the church and the Roman government came together and became so powerful that the day would come when the Pope himself would appoint the emperor of Rome. How in the world did we get there? And it would stay that way for a thousand years. And then we would have the Reformation and we'd have several other movements. But I have to tell you, we never got back completely to what we find in the book of Acts. So many things had changed. And I do not believe that it was the will of God that this happened. But I can tell you, just like the false prophets we're about to look at, They're very subtle. They're very dangerous. They don't announce themselves when they come in the door. And these false teachings, and and I can tell you, uh, no matter how orthodox we try to be, I still see in churches that that preach the Word and, and, and should know better, I still hear from the mouths of Christians sometimes things that I am like, that is so not biblical. I'm not saying that oh, they got to agree with me, that doesn't matter a bit in the world. No one cares what I think, and they shouldn't. But it doesn't comply with Scripture. It's not based on Scripture. It's based more on how we feel or ideas that we have developed along the way. Peter warned us. Peter says, I mean, this. when Peter writes this, this is in the 60s at best probably 62 or 3 A.D. He says they're false prophets. They were in the Old Testament. And they're false teachers already. Ever since there have been good prophets, there have been false prophets. And ever since we've had good teachers, we've had false teachers. There's just not been a time in the history of the church when we have been without them. So let's take a look and see what Peter has to say about these false prophets. He says, but false prophets arose from among the people. 
that is in verse 1. And, and let me just pause one second here to tell you if I wander off or something here in a moment. I have a migraine headache. I got it early this morning. And it's much better right now than it was before, but it does affect me somewhat. And so, I, I don't know, if I, if, if I start to act goofy, I mean more than usual, uh, somebody lead me to the car. False prophets, he says, arose among the people. We've always had them. They were called pseudo-prophetes was the word, and then he says there will be pseudo Didaskalon, the false teachers, will come after the false prophets. And he says they come in secretly and, and, and these, they, they have these secret destructive heresies. So first of all, understand this. A false prophet is never going to stand in the pulpit and announce such. They're never going to put on the front of their church building or the sign at the road that, hey, this church is led by a lying false prophet. It's never going to happen that way. They come in secretly. And he also says that the heresies that they preach are destructive. So let's go ahead now and do away with the idea that, well, you believing one thing and me believing something else and we just see things differently or whatever. All of that's innocent. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. As a matter of fact, Peter says these heresies are destructive. And I can tell you, they always are. They're not harmless. They're not innocuous in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, if you look at the word heresy in the Greek, it is a word that means to choose or to decide. Now, I love looking at these words before they got religion, and that's what the word meant. So when heresy comes in, that, that's how it comes in. It, it offers you a decision, something you've heard that may or may not be true. And, and now all of a sudden you have a choice. You have a decision that you can make. And I don't know of a better example in all the Word of God than Eve in the garden. She didn't know she had choices. She thought, don't eat of the tree because if you do, you'll die. But hey, somebody showed up one day and told her, hey, you've got choices. You don't have to be bound to just one way of looking at things. You, you, can, you can do whatever you like with some of the, these ideas. And man, it's always Satan does it the same way every time. He starts off as with deception. He came to Eve in the form of a serpent. He didn't come to Eve in the form of Satan. As a matter of fact, all through Scripture, every time Satan confronts a human being, he always confronts them in some form of a disguise. And every time, and I think this is kind of cool, every time he is in a con confrontation with God, he always confronts God as himself. Why? Because God would laugh at his costume. Why did you dress up as a serpent? I know what you are. I know exactly. Oh, you're an angel of light today. Oh, good. That's, that's snazzy. God would laugh at his face for trying to do such a thing. 
But with us, he likes to start with deception. So I want to tell you, sometimes when Satan comes to you and feeds you a lie, don't expect to be able to know, oh yeah, that's the devil and I shouldn't listen to him. It may come as some kind of theology that, that, that really blessed your heart in some way, that kind of set you free from some old-fashioned thinking, that, that maybe somebody told you your pastor back home has not been telling you the, the full truth, or, or you've not been tapping into that, that personal power that you have inside of you. Stephen Furtick tells us that, that what it is that, that, that God wants to do with us It's not save us from our sins as much as He wants to tap into that which has always been inside of you. I can tell you what's always been inside of me needed to be saved and forgiven. Not developed. Not reworked and put into service for God. There was nothing always inside of me. That was like that. That's a deception. And then he uses doubt. Same old pattern all the time. He looked at Eve. He says, hey, God really said. See, 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 see when, you, when he says that, it's sort of like you can just hear more than just those words. Like, why would he put all these trees in the garden if he didn't want you to eat from one of them? I mean, why didn't he just leave it out? Has God really said, did he put a tree here that bears fruit and then forbids you to eat from it? Does that make any sense to you, Eve? Well, no. Just doesn't. It sounds like God's keeping something from us. It sounds like God is trying to hide something from us. And then he finally, when he gets you warmed up, he moves straight on to denial he told her you shall not surely die those are probably the only two people he could have ever told that to because i think cemeteries pretty well tell the truth about you shall not surely die as far as the rest of us are concerned you shall not surely die just plain denial and peter says they even deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Are these people saved and or, or were they saved or whatever? I can just tell you now. One, you don't lose your salvation if you ever had it. The best thing I can explain about how these people turned against the master that bought them is just to say that salvation is available to all, but it's only effective for a few. Verse 2, and he says, and many follow their sensuality. Boy, they're popular. He didn't say a few. He didn't say just a handful of weak-minded ones would follow these false prophets. He says, no. He says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Man, popular, appealing. I've actually heard people say before, and, and I've even heard people say it about Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons and, and, and folks that there's just not any question about at all. Make statements like, well, I don't know, they might be wrong, but they sure do have a lot of followers. So does NASCAR. 
but they don't give an invitation. They take the offering as you go in the gate. They sing the same blooming song every time. And you have to sit beside people you don't even know. It's a wonder anybody would ever go to a NASCAR race. Those are all the reasons people quit going to church. Now, I can tell you, they're very popular. Sometimes they'll have mammoth churches. And sometimes false doctrine is the very way they got those mammoth churches. It says, and many will follow their sensuality. Boy, that word, aselgia, is the word in the Greek. And, and let me just tell you, that is one powerful word. Uh, James Strong, uh, if you've ever heard of Strong's numbers, he took the old English Bible and gave every single word. I mean, the A and the the and the an and all of them, every single word a number. Now, he did us a great favor because now you can go to that number on that word if you have a Strong's Concordance, and you can look it up if you have the Greek with it, and, and it, it's a tremendous help the way he mapped it for us. Strong's number 766 is the number for the word aselgia. I want to just read you his definition. Outrageous conduct. Conduct shocking to public decency. A wanton violence and wantonness and lewdness. Now, can you describe our world any better than that? Absolutely just shocking to public decency. Conduct that is outrageous and incredible Violence. All of that comes from people who have these whacked out ideas. And many of them will claim they serve God in some way. But he goes on to say, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Here's something we need to learn. I, I won't read them all, but in Ezekiel 36, it talks about the nations looked at God's people and said, you belong to God, but you're not in God's land anymore. And Ezekiel 36, 20 says, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. Titus chapter 1, verse 16 says, some of these folks profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These are people that decided to cross the border. Leave the boundaries of what God says we ought to do and be. And they ventured out. And God says, when my people did that, I mean, he allowed them to go into captivity. But their captors, the nations, the Gentiles mocked God. And mock the way of truth because here are these people that are supposed to know the Lord and are supposed to follow God and they've turned their back on Him and they don't even live in His land anymore. Just remember that. It, it is sort of like, it's an old saying, if you're going to play, wear the jersey, make sure you play on the team. Yeah, I, I'm sure you have seen these T-shirts that say property of, like Dallas Cowboys, 
uh, or property of, and you can put your own football team or whatever. It's some athletic whatever. And you're standing there in Walmart, and you're seeing a guy that's a if he were a little bit fatter, he would 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 maybe be uh, as wide as he is tall or whatever. But you you can just tell he's probably not playing for the Dallas Cowboys. And if you watch him long enough, I doubt seriously that anybody's going to run up and ask for an autograph. It is so obvious that his profession on his shirt is a joke. It's to sell t-shirts. And so understand this. It's serious business when we say, I am a born-again Christian. Good. Make that profession. But then when your life doesn't match your profession... And nowadays we have Christians who are living in fornication, some are living in adultery, some of them claim now they're gay, some of them are are doing all kinds of foolish things out in the world, and yet they've already professed property of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, everybody knows that that profession is a joke. You don't look at all like you play for that team. As a matter of fact, you make the team look, look bad. Verse 3 says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is an interesting verse. It says, And in their greed they will exploit you. The original words here in the Greek means they will make merchandise out of you. They are using you to buy that private plane. They're using you to fill up congregations. And and I can tell you, you don't have to be one of these TV rich preachers either. You can still use people to make you feel good about yourself just because you talk them into coming and sitting in the church and just because the numbers are going up and and, and just because some preacher feels better about himself because the, the seats are full and the plates offering plates are overflowing or whatever. You never use the people of God as merchandise. They don't belong to preachers. They belong to God. And we shouldn't exploit people and make merchandise out of them for our own personal reasons. And the prophet Micah, chapter 3, verse 11, says its leaders or its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? He says, No disaster shall come upon us because we got God here with us. Well, you can say that, but God says, I got something else to say. Let's move on. He says, They will exploit you with false words. The word for false here is plastos. Yep, you hear the word plastic in it. And that's where we get the word. Plasso is uh, 
Greek word for to mold or to shape with clay or wax. And I thought about that. If they exploit us with plastic words, man, what what is the advantages of plastic to start with? And you think about this. First of all, it's cheap. It doesn't cost you a lot. Paul says our works are tried as by fire. He says there's either wood, stubble, and hay, which is something that you have in abundance and is pretty much worthless, or either our works will turn out to, to be like gold, silver, and precious stones. You put that in the fire and it becomes even more precious. You put wood, stubble, and hay in the fire and it is destroyed and gone forever. So I can just tell you, a real walk with God is not something that's cheap. You remember Bonhoeffer talking about cheap grace. And I, I think sometimes we're, we're, we're looking for a deal that, that won't cost us so much. Maybe, you know, do I have to, do I have to be at church every Sunday? <laughs> You ever get into one of those conversations with somebody? Should I, do I have to be here every Sunday or, 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 or do I have to give every time the plate comes by or whatever it is? It is like what we're looking for is a cheap knockoff of the real thing. He says false prophets can offer you something that won't cost you a whole lot. Makes it popular. Another thing is plastic is flexible. Man, you can bend plastic in all kinds of directions. If it's not like you want it, you can just reshape it and make it however you like. And also, then it's moldable. You can take, it'll take whatever shape you desire for it to take. We talked about in our worldview studies, deconstructionism, where you take something that someone wrote and you deconstruct it or you change it around in your thinking to where instead of what it meant to the original author, you're asking, what does that mean to me? And we ask the dumbest question in the history of Bible study sometimes when we read a verse in small group and go, what did that verse mean to you? It doesn't matter what it meant to you. What does it mean? That's what matters. It doesn't mean that God won't speak to you through it and in some way for you to apply it, but He didn't give us the Bible and say, go off and read it and come back and just talk about what that verse means to you. God didn't give us His truth to shape it and mold it however we want it to be. I thought about a couple of great examples of this. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, it says it. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing or evil, but it rejoices in truth. Unless you can find love made out of plastic. And then you can take things that are evil and wicked and against the will of God, and you can call it love. Boy, today in our world, there's so many things that are going on that God calls an abomination. But because somebody came along and offered us a plastic view, we say it's just all love. It's just all love. How can you argue with love, preacher Mike? He loves him. 
I'm just saying to you, marriage, another great example. Marriage, pretty simple, really. One man, one woman, forever. I better go back over that. That's kind of long and complicated, isn't it? Let me break it down. One man, one woman, forever. And the forever part can get testy sometimes, can it not? You know, I, I, I think people that, <laughs> that get married often... I, I, I really think that they believe our marriages, that their marriage, had, they had trouble. They fussed. Well, lo and behold, I didn't know that. I don't blame you. I'd have got a divorce too. We all fuss. My wife fusses. And if I don't clean that up, she's going to fuss some today. We fuss. We don't call it fighting. We call it intense fellowship. Yes, sir. And let me tell you something else while we're on the subject. For you who think that all the rest of us had great marriages and we all get along 24-7, but you didn't, so you bailed. Let me tell you something. Marriage is not easy. It is a commitment that you make. And you don't fall in love. You fall in holes and empty whales. But you don't fall in love. Love is a commitment that you make to each other. And it's one man, one woman, forever. Unless somebody sells you a plastic one. And then you can just decide to look at all of that different. And today, we can't even stick with the one man, one woman. We've reshaped it. And we've remolded it. So it will fit our culture. Verse 4. It says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. He gives us a list of three here. The angels, he said God didn't even spare them, but he brought judgment upon them. I'm going to move on quickly here. He also said this in verse 5, he didn't spare the ancient world. But he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Now, this is his point he's been trying to get to. God takes care of his own. And those that that serve him faithfully, no matter how horrible the world around you gets, God's going to take care of us. He preserved Noah, a herald or preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a, a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Man, you see, our world's been a mess for a long time. 
But God says one thing. I know how to take care of my own. And another thing he teaches us throughout this whole passage. Don't ever think that I have forgotten about the wickedness you see around you. People that do things with impunity. People that just absolutely. Today we have violence on our streets where somebody walks up to an elderly person and just knocks them unconscious for no reason whatsoever. Just being wicked. This new deal where they go in department stores now, about 25 of them, and they just grab everything they can while the merchant's standing there with his mouth hanging open. And there's nothing he can do because in some of these places, the law says if it's, you know, less than $900 or so, then there won't even be any charges. It is really incredible. We've had that kind of thing, though, for a long time. But God says, I know how to take care of my people. You know, one of the things, dads, fathers, that we ought to learn from Noah. Noah built something that looked ridiculous to the world. Made him a laughing stock. But it protected his family from the wickedness and death around them. He built an ark in the middle of the desert. And man, I'm going to tell you, dads, you and I need to do some things that sometimes might look ridiculous. Might, it just might look absolutely foolish. And the world around you might not ever understand. The other people's kids might not know why your child has to be home at a certain hour. Or why you check their cell phone every day. Or why you have uh, some mechanism set up on their computer to know everything they looked at. I, I, I can tell you I've had people tell me they thought it was ridiculous that when I raised my kids, I would go in their room and look at anything I wanted to look at anytime I wanted to look at it. Well, kids need privacy. Not in my house they don't need privacy. If they want privacy, they can buy their own house. I'm raising kids. This is a war. See, we're going to have to get some gristle on our backs, Dad, and do some things that the world may think is stupid if we are planning on saving our families and protecting our children from the world around us. I wish Chase were here today. He had to work. He knows I love telling stories about him. He was an exciting son to raise. We had moved to a new location one time. I won't ever forget. The little boy next door kind of did what he wanted to do. He was being raised by his grandmother. Didn't have a dad in the house. One morning it stunned me. I went to wake the kids up for school. And Chase looked at me and said, I'm not going. Excuse me? He said, I'm staying home today. I mean, I was out of the blue. I just closed the door back, went and turned the shower on, went back to his room, picked him up, clothes and all. 
and helped him get started. Sometimes you have to do that. Now, some of you might be sitting here going, well, now I just think that, now that just, I don't, I don't know about that. That just, I think kids need their space and kids need their this and that. Look at the world around us. Does that make not help you to understand that what kids need are parents? They don't need you to be their friend, their buddy, their compadre, their partner in deception. They need for you to be their parents. And sometimes you have to do things that your neighbors may think are ridiculous. The kids your kids go to school with may laugh at them. But dad, you've got to not care. And you've got to do what's right before God. I'm going to close. We have a world around us that teaches a lot of things that are not biblical. And the church has been easy prey. Part of it is because we as pastors... A lot of us didn't do much teaching. Our preaching might have been loud and fast and funny. It might have had a cadence to it that sounded like we were suffocating up here. But it was about a mile long and a quarter inch deep. And we didn't teach people things. And I know sometimes here we might get in the weeds and, and sometimes we might you might think, well, you know... I, I, I've even had people tell me before, you know, Mike, you're more of a teacher than you are a preacher. That kind of bewilders me just a little bit because I want to tell you, if if preaching doesn't teach you something, it's not worth sitting there and listening to. Preaching is not a place where you go to have affirmed or reaffirmed for you everything that you already knew and believed. That's why these false prophets have taken so many of us captive. I would say to you parents, and we prayed for these kids last Wednesday night. We're going to keep praying for them. But we live in a tough world, and you know that. And now more than ever, they need us on our knees Our churches need to be places where sound doctrine and and biblical orthodoxy is preached. Not what we want to hear, not what we've always thought, but we need to hear what the Word of God has to say. And we need it more than ever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you, Father, please help us, God. Lord, sometimes, God, we know that, we know, God, that sometimes we want to we avoid certain things. We, we want to kind of maybe soften the blow a bit, Lord, or, or dull the edge of some truth, God. It might be because it, it is just so difficult to take such a stand and, and be a man like Noah, Lord, or, and and. and and to stand up in a society that cares nothing for you. But God, I pray that you'd help us. 
Help us, Lord, to desire your word, to study your word, God. And I pray that you would help me as a pastor and these other pastors to make a commitment that with our last dying breath, we will preach the truth no matter what. Please help us, God. I thank you for a church. I thank you, Lord, for being in a place where I don't have to fight anybody to get to do that. And I praise your name for that, Lord. But I pray that you would keep us close, God. We're not, we're not, beyond, we're not beyond God walking away from, from your truth, Lord. We're not beyond making it personal or, or using people for merchandise, God. I pray, Father, that you would help us to take a good look at our heart often. Help us to see what's really going on inside, where our motives lie. Help us to be the pastors, the leaders, and the church, God, that you would have us be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.